Sorry about that. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> All right, we are live. Good morning, everybody. Nikki Burnett here, Taste Life Nutrition. This is Taste Life Nutrition Radio, streaming live on KUHSDenver.com, the best station in the world. We've got some really cool talent on this station, uh, so I hope that you tune in on a regular basis because we have people who really want to bring you amazing goodness um, and that's what this show's about that's what tastes like nutrition radio is we are about truth uh, as best as we know it in health and wellness we're about bringing to you the goodness of, of what life has the goodness that that people have to give uh, because there are a lot of amazing people out there who are out there to serve and to to uh, to ask questions and to to bring more than just what is the status quo and to bring true health you know health is health is broad right it is mental emotional physical psychological relational financial it's all of the things and today it's dogs and animals and i i'm going to tell you that i've been looking forward to today for a lot of months now <laughs> And I'm so grateful. And if I come off nervous, it's because I kind of am. Because this is like the most amazing thing. And I'm just super excited to have and to bring to you the amazing Dr. Jean Dodds, who is a pioneer in the world of veterinary medicine. And so, Dr. Dodds. Oh, my music is on. Always my music is on. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Dodds, thank you so much for being here. I'm beyond grateful and so excited. Thank you for being here. I'm happy to be here also, Nikki. <laughs> so, if you don't, and you should, but if you don't already know Dr. Dodds, um, she is, as I said, or as I, I think, you know, I said this earlier in, in my promo video, um, you know, a true pioneer in what we now call functional veterinary medicine or integrative veterinary medicine or alternative veterinary medicine. She was all of these things before it was cool. And I love that because what I love about people who are, who are, you know, the before it's cool kind of people is because they're the people who question. They're the people who are seekers. There are people who are out there saying, you know, this is what I was taught, but why was I taught that? This is what I was taught, but let's dig deeper and let's understand more and see if there's more to the story um, because there always is. And, and you know, and, and, and sometimes it's even about maybe, and if I get this right a little bit, Dr. Dodds, maybe pissing off the mainstream a little bit because you are going to question and say, hey, I don't think that this is right, or maybe there's more to it, and let's 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 dig in and understand. I work really hard at surrounding myself with people people who are big thinkers and seekers, and the people who have really big brains. And Dr. Dodds has a massive brain, so thank you for bringing your brain to us. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'm going to stop rambling now, and I'm going to start to uh, get into the show. But of course, as always, the way that we start the show is with gratitude because gratitude can change the world. Uh, you know, let's bring as much goodness to the world as possible and be thankful for the things that we have because there's so much out there to be thankful for. So, Dr. Dodds, what are you grateful for today? I think that we'd like to talk about is first of all, 
all of us in the world have a place. All of us are important. It doesn't matter what our genetic background is, what our lifestyle is, what our environment is. We should cherish each other's opinions and listen to them carefully. When I was a senior high school student in Ottawa, where my late father was um, public health director, um, I told him I wanted to be a veterinarian. He said, that's ridiculous, Jane. Veterinary medicine can't possibly be as in-depth as human medicine, because all of my family on the father's side were basically in human health care. He said, how could you possibly learn everything about all the different species? I mean, we learn about one species, and it takes us a lifetime to really understand it. So after my, I applied to veterinary school, and they didn't let women in. That was number one. Wow. But in order to be considered, you had to have farm experience. You had to actually work on a farm. If you wanted to do companion animal medicine, you still had to uh, stook grain, milk cows, do all those things on a tractor, which I nearly killed myself on. So I spent two summers in Chauvel, Quebec, on a farm, in order to qualify to apply. Then they said, well, we might consider women if you got a 4.0 grade average out of four. So they blithely determined to be a veterinarian. I never even worried about it. I just suddenly got my photo and got in. Wow. So this was in 1959, and it was a five-year school in Ontario then, at the Ontario Veterinary College, which was considered to be the most modern of all veterinary colleges at the time in the world. And I had the honor and privilege to be taught by the people that wrote all the textbooks we studied. Even the textbooks from Australia, from Dr. Blood. He was our professor. And we were able to learn all those things from physiology and biochemistry and whatever. And in 1964, we graduated, and with the luck of the person upstairs, I was able to graduate first in agreement with Carlton Giles, a famous classmate uh, who was the editor of the Canadian Veterinary Journal for many, many years, and, was, and an expert in bovine learner's disease, which is like a um, inflammatory bowel disease of the cow. So we graduated together, and when we brought up to, um, to receive our awards, the uh, valedictorian, who was a large animal practitioner, looked at the audience and said, I don't believe there's a place for women in veterinary medicine. They should be at home and not giving up the, uh, taking up the livelihood of the men in the world that need to be veterinarians. And of the six of us women in the class of 64, four of us were in the top 10. So anyway, when I got up to receive my award, I graciously accepted it, you know, not really saying what I thought. And my colleague Carson said, if it wasn't for Jean striving to be as good as she could be, not competing with anybody, I wouldn't stand up here today with her. So I've never forgotten the generosity of my classmate and the feelings that we had for being allowed to do what we need to do in life. I was trained as a classical uh, clinical research scientist. I didn't really know anything about alternative holistic medicine. But I finally decided, as you mentioned, Vicki, that there was something different than what we've been memorizing. Surely there must be explanations for things we didn't understand. Surely as science evolved to become more molecularly based, more genetically based, more genome related based, we would learn more about how 
environment affects the expression of the genetic makeup of every individual mammal. So 20 years ago, I foolishly taught people that two to three percent of the genome, the genetic basis of cats, dogs, and horses, and people, for example, were based on the genetics. And the 98 percent that we didn't know anything about was just genetic junk. Can you believe that? I thought that we were full of genetic junk. How arrogant and stupid that was. And what we now know from a study of genetics and epigenetics is the genetic, quote, junk, is what regulates the expression and controls whether the genes are expressed in a positive way or a negative way to allow us to live and hopefully thrive. So I love that. And here's, here's what, um, what I, I find so am amazing and a little bit sad. And, and you know, you, I try to figure it out. But what, what we find, or what I see, this is my experience, what I, I see in medicine, you know, the conventional medicine, is if we don't understand it or fully understand it, then we think it's not necessary. So you talk about genetic junk. We have all of this stuff that's genetic junk, right, that is, is clearly not the case. But you go back to wisdom teeth, you go back to uh, uh, the appendix, you go back to tonsils, and of course these are all in humans. But we think, well, they don't have a place, they're only there because, well, we don't know why they're there. Since we don't know why, they don't belong, so we just take them out. When they all play a role and they all have an important role in the body. And then we can go even further than that and we can, you know, there's this, well, it's there, it has a place but it's really not that big a deal. So then we start to remove gallbladders and we start to remove parts of stomach and parts of intestines. And sometimes these things are necessary, but I think that so often they're not and can, can the, the downward effect of, of, the, of, of removing these things and having the, the and more than that, having the, the thought and the view that they're not important and that they're junk. And, and as I believe you and I agree, these are, we are, you know, God created creatures. Things aren't there by accident and things aren't there because, well, who knows? So it doesn't matter. Let's just take it out. It just floors me. It's this amazing view that is beyond my comprehension. These are Luddites. These are what? Luddites. L-U-D-D-I-T-E-S. Remember? People that don't have any thought beyond their own rigid belief. Um, Whatever. Yeah. I'm just yeah. Re reading the life story again of Lincoln and his fight for um, abolishing slavery and all of the um, conflicts of interest that the people in our government did at that time, which is really not much different than what's going on today in other parts of the world. But, but let me just talk a little bit about what we now know. The microbiome, all the organisms that live in the bowel of people and other mammals, control basically everything. There are 200 times more microbes in the bowel than there are in the entire genetic makeup of the body. And these microbes, bacteria, viruses, fungi, toxins, parasites, whatever, um, control what goes on. What we have to do in life is promote the beneficial microbiome those organisms that are necessary for digestion, assimilation, feeding, supplying the rest of the tissues in the body and the brain are paramount over those few organisms that are harmful to the body. And we have to keep this balance in mind. And one of the ways to do that 
and by balanced nutrition and antioxidants and probiotics and prebiotics, etc., to keep the balance where it should be. And that's really why I decided that I had to be more involved in holistic medical care. And in 1982, when our mentor, Carlo Tico, started the whole concept of the American Holistic Veterinary Medical Association, I was asked, because I was very vocal at that time, about the fact that we were probably giving too many vaccines to animals, just like we were to people, and that we shouldn't automatically assume that vaccinations will cure anything. Well, obviously, they have an important role to play, but that, that's, that's not a question. But we have to recognize that early vaccination is not necessary, and was there another way to do it? So I was invited to the Holistic Veterinary Medical Association meeting to talk about vaccination. And when I got there, there was, was a holiday in with those horrible orange shag rugs, you know, that <laughs> could imagine all the organisms and dust and stuff oh, that was in there. Oh, no. medicine who you know they are very compartmentalized which is okay right to an extent you know they have their specialties and that's what they see and they don't look at what how their specialty affects the other parts of the body you know so the cardiovascular surgeon or not the surgeon but the cardiologist or you know the neurologist and it's this is this is all they know but then to bring in those who have that holistic view and have the ability to understand what it what what how to bring it all together because we are holistic our body is holistic it's not in pieces and parts you know you do something with the your your neurotransmitters it's likely going to affect your gut and vice versa um and you just you 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 know keep going out from there and then at the same time it's you, you go beyond that you go beyond what's inside the body and you go outside the body what's the environment like what toxicities are there and how are all these things then playing a role in affecting the microbiome and affecting um, gut health and infecting uh, affecting all of the different parts of us because it's all connected and so we to come together as 
the conventional, both the conventional as well as the holistic or integrative, right, is, is it's so important because they're both so necessary. And I talk to, I talk to people, clients specifically, but I would say this would be with animals too, especially when dealing with chronic diseases, uh, you know, cancer and things like that, is you have to have your team because you have to have people who specialize and who can help you get through. And I think it's the same with your dog. If you see the, the best uh, oncologist for your dog who has cancer, you might want to consider also seeing a good acupuncturist and also seeing a good nutritionist and all of these things. So you build your team in order to bring together those who are going to do best and allow your you or your dog or your horse or your cat or whatever it may be to thrive because that's what it's all about is 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 thriving not just surviving and that's a lot of what we see is we're going to do this in order just to survive and that's not a way to live whether you're a dog or a person <laughs> no, I, I think it's the quality of life we, yes. we really love our animals and our companions so much that we want to extend their life when they're suffering that's not responsible yes. we are their stewards we are responsible for making sure that they don't suffer needlessly unfortunately in veterinary medicine we have the option to take care of that which of course is different in human medicine and as you said Nikki I mean remember the famous song the head bones connected to the neck bones connected to the whatever yeah now I was trained classically as a hematologist and immunologist and the reason I got interested in it is because I had von Willebrand's disease and I was born with von Willebrand's disease uh, through my mother's side of our family and it's the most common inherited and uh, it's also acquired but inherited breeding disorder of people and many many animal species at least 50 or 60 dog breeds and hybrid breeds are known to uh, carry this trait and so one of the things we did for many years is when people had uh, dogs that were born with hemophilia A, that's the common form of hemophilia that Queen Victoria, for example, passed on to the royal families of Europe, factor eight deficiency, and there was hemophilia B, which was called Christmas disease. It's pretty interesting, and that's not after the holiday, it's after the first patient recognized uh, there was a patient in England, in Oxford, and a patient in Los Angeles, and the Los Angeles patient's surname was Christmas. And they discovered this deficiency, much less common than hemophilia A, called hemophilia B, or Christmas disease, and it's a deficiency or dysfunction of a protein called factor 9. Factor 9 is a much smaller molecule than factor 8, and in fact, there have been at least five published papers in the recent literature that have identified the genes associated with uh, factor IX deficiency and allowed to correct them, either by snipping out um, an abnormal gene by the CRISPR technology of the Nobel Prize winning ladies, um, Jennifer Gardner and Mario Charpentier and colleagues, uh, either cut out the abnormal gene and insert a normal one, or um, if it's deficient, put in the normal gene. And so there's been one paper on correcting factor eight deficiency that way recently. I'm just writing the review so I happen to know about this. And there have been studies also on the disease I have, the disease. So because I got interested in hematology and immunology, one day I said to myself, well, surely those functions of the body are controlled by the master glands in the body, meaning the pituitary gland and the thyroid gland. Mm -hmm. 
That's how it got understood in thyroid disease and how it regulates the production of all the cells in the body and the microbiome and the gut and the brain and their behavior, et cetera, et cetera. That's amazing. Um, you know, we have what the sad thing about when it comes to our animals is they're following in line with us as as the humans. They live with us, and so as humans, we are dealing with what thyroid dysfunction, gut dysfunction, cognitive dysfunction. You know, all of these things that that we we do due to lifestyle. You know, it's it's yeah. So it's 95% of the stuff that we deal with as humans is uh, lifestyle related. And then 5% you can blame on genetics, right? Right, yeah, three to 5%. Yeah, right. yeah. And there's only a handful of genes that are involved in this, and it's one health. Animals and people have the same yes. mechanisms, and so it's one health. And by studying one, we can learn about the other. Mm -hmm. However, Something very interesting recently was published, and there have been many, many studies of cardiovascular disease and atherosclerosis, where the human body forms uh, lipid deposits and you get clots, and, and God forbid you can end up in acute death. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that many animal models have been studied of atherosclerosis in people. In fact, I did that when I was a veterinary student in Ontario with my first research with the famous uh, Dr. J. Fraser Mustard, who was the first dean of the medical school at Hamilton, Ontario. Anyway, what we found was we would study rats and mice and rabbits and pigs, because pigs have a similar anatomical mechanism to people. And so we thought by feeding them high-fat or low-fat diets, all in a non-invasive way, just studying them, and then we would study what happened to them so they would be able to predict how to control atherosclerosis in people. Now, this recent paper just boggles the line. It tells you that none of those animal models were relevant to human atherosclerosis because the mechanism involved in the animal species, other than humans, and, and non-human primates, is totally different that of human beings. There are different genetic factors involved. Oh my God, 50 years of research on looking at the markers, you know, don't eat too much egg, don't eat too many fats, eat high fiber, all of it, the high fiber stuff is right. But all the other stuff turns out to be the wrong models for human atherosclerosis. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. And it's so sad because, you know, beyond just, just the studies being wrong, uh, but they, we've taken it and we've politicized fat, and so now we have you know more atherosclerosis, more cardiac events, more uh, cerebrovascular events than we ever did before. And then, we're, but we're still fighting it, and we're still fighting. And we're like, you know, vegetable oil is fine, vegetable oil is not fine, you know, for animals or for humans. Sugar is not fine, you know, processed foods are not fine. Yeah. When we define what atherosclerosis was in animals, beautifully, sophisticated, and it's true for them. Yeah. But for people, we've got lifestyle, as you said, we've got smoking, we've got alcohol, we've got drugs, we've got lack of exercise, all of these things that are necessary to benefit human health are not being done the way they should in most of the world today. And then we have all the new invasions. We have um, the, the new avian influenza strain. Is uh, affecting people and, and the poultry industry everywhere in the world now uh, because the wild birds that carry it fly over to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. 
okay? And they had monkeypox again. Everybody was hysterical about monkeypox, which is really not that much a big deal other than being horribly unsightly and lasting for two to four weeks. And the fact that people don't understand it could be transferred from anybody on, on, on utensils, on food, on tires, on bedding, on anything, if you contact somebody or an animal, like a rodent or a primate, that has monkeypox. So it looks like little blisters all over the body of a rash. So what happens? Homophobia arises, and people say, oh, it's from sexual contact between consenting men. It's not that. Sexual contact spreads monkeypox, period. Doesn't matter how you express that sexual contact. Sure. It's the contact with infected tissues that sure. spreads it. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, yeah. The monkeypox thing is is, <laughs> is is interesting for sure. I mean, it's like coming on the heels of the pandemics. Like everybody is just all over the place freaking out. Um, but what I want to talk about a little bit about is, you know, as we're talking about, you know, cardiovascular disease and we're talking about, um, you know, the way that we feed ourselves, I want to talk about the way that we feed our animals. Um, because, you know, I, you know when, I, when I'm talking to my clients, so I see both uh, human clients as well as dog clients, but mostly human clients, you know, I equate feeding kibble, which is the hard, you know, food that we have been told by big pet food and big food and, and all of these big companies with really good marketing budgets uh, that they know how to take care of our dogs and that kibble is healthy for our animals. And what I try to help people understand is that they deserve real food because if we're feeding them kibble every day, it's like us eating McDonald's every day. And so they may not develop cardiovascular disease, but they'll sure develop, you know, cognitive dysfunction and diabetes and uh, early death. I mean, that's a pretty big deal, early death, when we should have our dogs living to what, between 20 and 30 years old, and we start calling our dogs at eight years old seniors. It's heartbreaking. Um, and it, it, it is, I mean, you're one of the people who I learned from when I started learning on my own dogs what it is to feed real food to our animals and how important it is. You're correct, absolutely. If you can't feed fresh, organic, preferably, if you can get it and afford it, foods, you really should be very careful. And this whole issue about you have to have grains and grain-free foods or boutique diets caused cardiovascular disease and cardiomyopathy attacks is total unmitigated BS. Yes, ma'am. And I won't even say it out loud. Say it, say it. It's shown to be completely untrue. Yeah. And so we, we prefer grain fruit. I mean, grains are glutens mostly, and glutens are not to be given to animals that have thyroid dysfunction. We just already talked about the role of how many animals have thyroid dysfunction and people, by the way, today, because of what we've done to our environment and polluted them and depleted the ozone layer and whatever. And so we have all of these um, grain-free foods that are much safer. And you know that 40% of women in our country today, over 37, at some point have self-diagnosed themselves based on their clinical and behavioral signs, failure to memory, not a good memory, not a poor cognition, to have gluten intolerance. Yeah. Why do you think so many gluten-free ingredients are available for people and animals worldwide? Because we need them. So we want to reward. Do people know that Canute's fat, barrel, and glucose are glutens? Probably not. 
the people realize that if you feed oats that has to lab, be labeled gluten-free, that even our famous Quaker oats has two versions, the regular version, which is made in a plant that also has gluten grains, yep. and then it says gluten-free right on the top. Right. So what I'm saying, unequivocally, from my personal experience, being gluten-intolerant since age 60, and I'm 81 now, so it's been a long time, and it was very hard for me to live a gluten-free lifestyle when I first started to, and that I noticed that my weight didn't change the way my shape did, and I looked like a pear, my ankles would swell when we traveled by plane anywhere, and my belly looked like I was seven months pregnant, which I surely wasn't. So what I did was, when I started experimenting and only avoiding gluten, I found that my ankles didn't swell anymore, my stomach became normal again, I had a waistline, I had clear memory and cognition, but I hadn't realized that I was, I thought I was just getting old. Well, heck. My late mother lived to be 99, so obviously I've got good genes in my family, so I've got to try to emulate her. Yeah, you know, it's true, and there's, there's, there, there's such a lack of understanding, you know, about gluten because there are, you know, we, you know, we know that there was a time, I mean, we, hundreds of years ago where gluten containing products, you know, wheat was a, it was a, a staple, you know, it was in unleavened bread. It was in, you know, we, we, that's what, you know, in part what people ate, but at least here in the States and in, in other places, we take it, we mess with our wheat um, and it is not a, it's not a normal grain like it was. And oftentimes, if we are gluten intolerant, we can go over to Europe where they don't mess with their food and we're much more tolerant of it unless, of course, you know, we're dealing with autoimmune celiac disease. But why does, why does wheat, for example, uh, aggravate thyroid dysfunction in people at risk and animals at risk for having thyroid disease? That's because the protein in these gluten is called gliadin. G-L-I-A-D-E-N. And gliadin has exactly the same molecular structure as thyroxin. Yep. And so it's a case of molecular mimicry. That occurs when the body is exposed to something that looks like something else in the body. And if it's recognized as foreign, the body aims to destroy it. So that's what happens with Hashimoto's lymphocytic thyroiditis which is the most common autoimmune cause of thyroid disease in the dog. And Graves' disease, which in humans is hyperthyroidism, and the parallel, somewhat like it, is in the cat with overage hyperthyroidism, which we know was triggered by iodine oversubscription. Foods that were given too much iodine that caused uh, promoted hyperthyroidism in cats, including uh, canned cat foods and the uh, preservatives you put on the layer inside the can to keep it as a preservative. Uh, looking at all of these um, parasiticides to control heart rate foods and ticks and can be so dangerous despite the fact that they're the biggest money makers for the major big pharma companies today in veterinary medicine. We as people need to realize that the companies that, ma that manufacture these products and market them absolutely beautifully are doing it because that's their job. Yep. And, and they should be. That's what they're paid to do. We just have to say, is this correct for me and my family and my animals? Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's frustrating because, you know, I, I, I tend to look at it, I'm a very positive person, but I tend to get really angry because I, I look at it like, 
how is it that these people can, these people, these groups, whether it's the marketing group or the, the, the big companies, you know, how is it that they can truly sit back and say it's okay to feed these things or to put these toxic sub sub uh, substances on our bodies or on our animals' bodies and say, yeah, this is totally fine. You know, what is it? If we, if we put pesticides on our body every single day, which actually we partly do when we eat our food, um, if we're not eating organic, but if we're doing this every single day, how can we not end up with a toxic overload? How can our body? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and look at the people that put um, estrogen-related creams on their bodies yes. to help their skin and then held their small pet against their chest and their pets got gynecomastia. In other words, they got milk production because of the hormones they were imbibed and getting into the skin from their uh, caregiver's body. Uh, I mean, think about it. It's just, uh, but you know what happened? Because the big industries promote their products, they refuse to put warnings on the label about these, for example, foreign tick preventers. They wouldn't do it. The European Medicine Agency required it, and it was done. The uh, North American people said it had to be done. Uh, in Canada, they put the warnings on the labels nearly two years before they started to appear recently in America. Why? Because the big companies said the number of doses they made and sold in Canada were not that many, so it didn't really matter. They had to sell their current inventory of gazillion million doses before they would change the label in America. So now all of these labels do appear with warnings on pet foods in the product insert. Many times the advertising label has a black background with white print and tiny font size 7. So if you weren't looking for it, you wouldn't read it. But I will admit that all these companies now do have those warnings on the labels. So please, please read them. Yeah, I mean, they're black, black box warnings, right? I mean, just like we have in, in, in medicine and with surgical devices or implants and things like that, these black box warnings. But, yeah, it's, we have to pay attention to them because, you know, these are things that, that we're doing to ourselves and to our animals every single day, sometimes two or three times a day. You know, you think about, uh, think about the when we're doing heartworm prevention and we're doing flea prevention and we're doing tick prevention and we're doing worm prevention and we're doing all of these things and then we're doing vaccines and then we're feeding food that doesn't support the body. I mean, it, it's, it's a hard thing to take in and you know, I've done the same thing myself. I did it growing up. I didn't know any differently, but we literally are not giving anything to our animals that's supportive. It talks about being healthy, right? It talks about being right. clean and you know, no, no worms and no bugs and all of these things are good things. But we're, 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 we're switching the, the worms and the bugs and things for toxic, a, a massive toxic burden on the body and then no food to help the body to understand how to detoxify it. Well, it's really frustrating for me as many, many veterinarians, when you first see a patient with some kind of gastrointestinal disorder, assume they've got internal parasites. So before they do any checking to see if their actual parasite cysts in the feces, they run them automatically with a bigger double-double-double-double-double-double, yeah. okay? Yeah. Before they even go to positive. Well, that's a stress. The animals are already sick, and it's coming because the caregiver wanted it looked at. And then we have people that say, well, because you're not being conscientious, Mr. Jones, and giving your heartworm preventive on a regular basis, 
every month or every day if you're still using diethylclobenazine, as you can still buy, by the way, um, in Canada and Australia and other places. Uh, I'm not saying you should do it, it's just some people think it's safer. Um, they're saying, please give the six month or 12 month product so you don't have to remember. Oh, man. Good. I mean, surely they have to understand that a product that will prevent this kind of uh, infection for six or 12 months has got to have some residual toxic side effects. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so frustrating. And I'll tell, I, I, I feel the need to say this because, um, you know, not everybody should do what I do or what, you know, Dr. Dodd says. And maybe you should. Or, <laughs> but um, what I do with my dogs when I t I've got three girls and they're crazy and they're super fun. But what I do with them is I, when I take them to the vet for their checkup, you know, they always do the automatic deworming. I have to tell them, do not deworm my dogs. We can check for parasites. And that's great. And then if they come up, then we'll, we'll address it and see what we need to do. And there are natural ways of addressing parasites. But do not just automatically deworm. I don't vaccinate anymore. I do titers. I think, you know, this would be a good one to talk about. Um, but, you know, again, we're going back to we think we're keeping our animals healthy by introducing all of these immunostimulating uh, and then, you know, substances and then the immune system goes crazy. We can't figure out why our dogs are coming up with all of these conditions and diseases and dying early. And it's not, it's, it's, it's this, it's what we're told to do. And instead of, like I said early on, instead of questioning what we're told to do, we go, okay. And so be the, be the ones who think outside the box. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do certain things, but it's, Ask the question why. This is what I teach my clients about whatever it is that they're dealing with, with you know, if it's autoimmune condition, let's ask why. What's going on in the body that's created this, this, this autoimmune disease to express? So let's dig in and ask the question. And so I would tell you, I would challenge you out there to do the same thing with your dogs, to challenge, do they actually need the vaccinations? Um, this does not include puppy vaccinations. And again, I wanna talk about this, but you know, do they need to, to have biannual deworming do they need heartworm we're in Colorado Colorado doesn't need heartworm meds and we have people giving heartworm meds we don't have fleas dogs are getting flea drugs you know I mean it just it floors me let's think outside the box a little bit and understand why we're doing these things you know, one of the um, most annoying situations about vaccine effects is the presence of heavy metals in vaccines yes. for both humans and animals, yeah. mercury and aluminum primarily. And do you know that there is a moratorium put on giving uh, children infant vaccines that control, uh, that contain mercury, thimerosal salts, or aluminum until they're at least 12 months old, with the reflected their development? But that doesn't matter. I mean, we have veterinarian scientists, and we've got to give this rabies vaccine. And yes, Mrs. Smith, we gave you a vaccine made by company X that does not contain mercury. Well, guess what? I know, and the only knew, the caregiver knew, that that vaccine company doesn't make a mercury-free rabies. So in fact, the veterinarian had no idea. That was the one their corporate office provided. They didn't ask for another one. This person and the animal had a severe adverse reaction, had a rabies vaccine requiring mercury. And yes, the animal had clinical conditions that might have allowed a medical exemption based on the point of booster and a rabies tire to be used instead, along with the written justified medical exemption. 
And there are 18 states in America that allow justified medical exemptions for rabies, and the other states do it on a case-by-case basis. It has to be written, can't be based on the animal's age, has to be based on prior adverse reactions or chronic ongoing disease that is known to be aggravated by uh, these vaccines. And so it's pretty interesting. I mean, this individual was horrified. But the veterinarians stood up yeah and so that leads me to uh, oh shoot I've got it man this is going by so fast I gotta take a I gotta take a quick break and talk about our sponsor this is a problem we're gonna have to have you back on because this is way too much fun um <laughs> so our sponsor Cellcore Cellcore Biosciences uh, one of my favorite companies if not my favorite company to date who uh, are are innovative in the way that they uh, develop their supplements. They're innovative in the way that they deliver the the nutrients, the herbs, the ingredients to the cells in order to support the mitochondria, in order to support our cells and our energy, and to eliminate toxins, including. I say this all the time. People hate it. We get worms too. So getting rid of worms, getting rid of parasites, getting rid of the pathogenic microbes that we may have, helping to balance the microbiome. Talking about the microbiome helping to support the organ systems to allow our bodies to to heal, to regenerate, to repair, so we can live a life that it, that we were meant to live. You know, and that's 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 my goal with my business is when I work with my clients is we all are here for a reason. We all have really big things to do and people to impact. And if we don't feel good, we can't do it. And so I want to help people feel well. I want to help people keep their dogs feeling well. Um, and then, you know, and Cellcore is a big part of that. You know, a lot of the Cellcore products I use on my dogs. Uh, and so I'm hoping they're gonna come out with a dog line. I think that would be super cool. Uh, but I do use their products on the dogs. They've got amazing stuff. You can only get them through practitioners uh, because they are strong and they work really well. So you want to uh, be really careful about what you're doing and how you're doing it. But um, uh, obviously, you know, you can, post, you know, ask us questions, you know, on Facebook or wherever it is, and, and we're happy to answer questions for you, but uh, find a practitioner who uses them and ask about them because they're good stuff, or ask me because I use them and I love them. So, um, I wanted to hit on real quick because you are obviously an advocate for the least amount of vaccines possible, you know, doing those only that are necessary, and what we're finding is rabies vaccines mandated by the federal government are, are were yearly now they're out to three years but you were involved in a pretty amazing study um, that pushed it out although the federal government hasn't pushed it out yet but it did show what it was up to six years was was it showed yes we um, this is the rabies challenge fund.org which has now been completed a study that Ron Schultz, Lori Larson, Chris Christine and myself undertook and what happened was we were trying to determine whether rabies vaccines would give challenge trial protection for five to seven years beyond the three years of current licensing now obviously the vaccine companies were not involved in this study it was privately owned privately determined um, non-profit and we studied the vaccines and we realized that by age six and a half the animals were still protected that we needed more challenge vaccine 
for the seven year period. And the only source of live rabies vaccine for challenge is the USDA, and they didn't have any. Mm. So we could not continue the study beyond the six and a half year period. And the challenge trial data, there were 92 intact female beagles, puppies used in the study. They each received two rabies vaccines, three weeks apart as I recall, that's all. They were kept in a veterinary facility with free ranging, um, beautiful facility, well cared for. And when we were finished the study, there were 34, actually 35, there were 34 beagles left over and we had originally got an agreement from the university uh, president and the dean of the veterinary school in the place where it took place that any animals that were not studied, in other words, they never received any rabies virus, nothing, only the two vaccinations, could be adopted as family companions. And when the study finished, we could not complete it at seven years, as I told you. The only challenge data we had was at five even though the animals were six and a half years when we realized we had to stop the study. So we stopped the study and the 35 beagles were scheduled for adoption. All of a sudden, the new dean of the veterinary school had no idea about the prior arrangement agreement, which I had in writing. They said, oh no, no, we can't do that. These are six and seven year old female beagles. They've never been spayed. They've never been on a leash. They've only been in outdoor and free-range housing. They would never make commercial pets. I said, nonsense. They said, well, um, what are you going to do about it? I said, I'm going to invoke our original agreement. I'm going to pay to transfer the beagles to us at the Moped in Southern California, and we're going to spay them all, and we're going to have them adopted. Well, these lovely animals arrived. 34 arrived. For some reason, number 35 didn't come. Um, they were frightened and they were in cages and they were basically well cared for. They said they were all healthy. One of them had a tooth answer and a huge swelling underneath his eye that apparently hadn't been noticed. So we took care of them, we got them all spayed, and guess what? Within three weeks they were all adopted. One person adopted two. And then we said, but wait a minute, what happened to number 35? Oh, they forgot about her. So they paid to fly to the county and we had her adopted right away. So in fact, the latest challenge patent was a success. But we have to wait now to see is whether the USDA followed exactly the federal requirements for licensing of the rabies vaccine. So all of the current licensed rabies vaccine follows the same protocol. So our protocol should be accepted as equivalent. If that's the case, the USDA should allow the two vaccines involved to have a five-year license. The question is, will Big Pharma allow that right. because all the other that? Why would you buy another vaccine if you can get one that's working free that lasts for five years? Yeah, yeah. Right? Right, right. Yeah, and I think, so, yeah, it, it's a huge les lesson, and it's it's something to understand uh, that I, the, a, a point that I want to make, you know, Sure, you know, we, uh, for whatever reason, <laughs> frustrated that this is a mandate by the federal government. For one, I think it's antiquated and ridiculous. But for two, understanding that when you vaccinate, and, and if I say something wrong, please, please uh, correct me, but when you vaccinate, it creates an immune response. And many, many times, oftentimes, for 
years to come. I think some of them are up to nine years and some of them are lifetime, right? Right. Yeah. Because your immune memory cells are committed. When you measure serum antibody titers, they may wane gradually and be at a borderline level or even negative. But if you stimulate those animals with a booster, and in our studies we did that with the non-adjuvanted feline rabies vaccine, yeah. which we have any more serious in a minute. Mm -hmm. When we did that, the titers went from less than 0.1 international units per mil, which is the uh, North American standard, to over 15 units per mil which is way beyond the WHO standard, which is 0.5 international units per mil for export to those countries that don't have rabies. <coughs> so it's amazing. The immune memory was there. We could demonstrate it. We knew they were protected. Yeah, yeah. So take that to heart, please, uh, when, when you, you, you do your puppy vaccinations. And I know that Dr. Dodds has a, you know, look, look it up, right? You have, it's easy to find published, yes. your published, published vaccine pro protocol for puppies. But beyond that point, there is absolutely no need. And my understanding is no data showing the need or the necessity or the benefit of giving yearly vaccinations. Am I saying that properly, that there's no data That's to support? That's correct. There's no evidence that if people's animals have serum antibody titers and immune memory committed cells, they will not get infected. Yeah, yeah. And this is... Now, they may carry it. Let me just... Uh, okay. Sorry, Nikki. Yeah. Listen, they can harbor the virus, for example, coronavirus. Animals that are completely in, you know, vaccination isn't necessarily immunization. The vaccine has to take and immunize the patient. If that pet is immunized against canine parvovirus, it can take in the virus and it can live in the body that doesn't multiply a cause disease. It could, however, shed to a susceptible dog in the environment. Okay. Okay, that's interesting. I, I didn't know that. Okay. Right. Um, yeah, I, it, it, that's interesting. I, you know, I, I think my, my mind was going, you know, we, we as humans, as animals, as, I mean, we all, there are viruses around us all over the place that we're constantly shedding anyway. I mean, it's kind right. of you know, part of it. And so that would, in my mind, it means, yes, that's a possibility, but let's look at keeping our dogs healthy. So if it does shed from a dog who may be a carrier, that our dogs have the ability to fight it off. And how does that happen? happens through real food, it happens through exercise, it happens through keeping dogs calm and mellow and having a good life and, and, and all of the things that we talk about that are so important when it comes to our health and our dog's health and then not continuously stimulating the immune system with all of these things that we think that we're told, right? We believe it, we're told that they're healthy and they are so detrimental. So often mm -hmm. of the time, and the reactions uh, that whether they're, I you know I was I was uh, reading some of your stuff, and the, there was a, a, a mast cell uh, tumor from you know an injection site. Maybe that was from the person you co co co-founded the trial with. I can't remember what it was. Um, anyway, I read a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's maybe all coming together, but. You know these you know these problems it, it just anyway i'm going to stop rambling i have a bad habit of that because we're coming to the end of our time and i can't believe it and this has been so much fun i want you to talk about a couple of things first 
I brought it because this is the book. When people, if I do a podcast or if I do a talk or if I'm talking about dogs or even humans, I'm going to leave it here so you can write it down. Um, but, you know, people will say, so what is your favorite or give me a list of your favorite books. This is always on my list of favorite books. Um, I, I, I've learned so much from it. I'm grateful to you for it. This helped me to, to really kind of hone in. I believe maybe I purchased it when my first dog, who I, so I had two dogs who I learned off of, which I hate to say, but it's true, it's what we do. Um, both of them died of cancer, which is, uh, it, it just eats me up that that's the case, but they did. Um, but I fed them kibble. Even when I was feeding them real food, I did feed them kibble, um, and now I know better. I don't ever feed kibble. Anyway, I learned a lot from this book uh, when my, with my first guy who passed of osteosarcoma. Um, so thank you for that. Beyond that, though, you have these amazing organizations, and you have a really amazing lab test. So I want you to talk about these these things that I think are kind of your sort of your passions. That this is why you do what you do, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, my passion is to understand and, and look at things and see them and think outside the box. Yeah. Um, our Canine Nutrigenomics book published in 2015 has been a bestseller, as has our 2011 book called The Canine Thyroid Epidemic, which was the, given the um, Best Dog Healthcare Book of the Year award. Uh, we were thrilled with that. But um, what happened with Nutrigenomics, in fact, even recently, <laughs> Excuse me, a board certified dermatologist, not to be named, said in print in a large veterinary magazine that there's no accurate testing for food sensitivities or intolerances in pets for anything other than serum testing, which is absolutely not true. <coughs> so, excuse me, serum testing in the immunoglobulin E or D or G or whatever in humans and animals is not clinically predictive. And that's been well shown. The predictive test is the saliva test that we have patented worldwide called Nutriscan. And I don't make any um, apologies for promoting the Nutriscan test because it's been published in a peer-reviewed scientific literature and not based on people that write in magazines that have not come through scientific peer review. And in fact, there's outcome studies that there's no question we've done it in the dog and the cat and the horse. Uh, we are now um, measuring biomarkers of oxidative stress in the body. Um, the, again, in saliva, a fluid that's very easily collected by the pet caregiver and the veterinarian under the guidance of the pet caregiver. And biomarkers of oxidative stress in people and animals are markers of infection, inflammation, periodontal disease, yeah. obesity, and cancers certain cancers. In fact, in periodontal disease, we now know that if pets go in for their annual wellness checkup when they're two or three or four years old, they can have this test done on the saliva to determine if they're at risk for more dental plaque and harder, so they can start their regular dental uh, prevention earlier in life until, uh, so that they're not going in when they're 12, 13, 16 years of old age with a horrible infected mouth where it's affecting their heart and other body tissue right. to have their teeth cleaned when it can be a risk even for the anesthesia required. Yep. Yeah, um, so 
sorry, <laughs> I was I was so enthralled with what you were saying, I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> but yeah, so the NutriScan, um, I, I have a dog who I keep saying I need to get it for one of my dogs. Um, and so I'm excited about that. I, I the, It's interesting, again, it goes back to the mainstream. When you do something outside of mainstream, you're going to piss some people off. Um, but that's when you know you're doing something right. So. <laughs> well, it's a bit of a conflict of interest. I mean, yeah. dermatologists and gastroenterologists, specialists can spend thousands of, of a pet caregiver's dollars trying to s trace a particular thing when it could be an environmental inhaler, a contact allergy, and a food sensitivity. Right. And then people think, well, your test showed that my dog reacted to rabbit. And she's never been fed rabbit because I raised her as a puppy. And I said, hmm, does she exercise in the backyard of the park? Yes. Do you have any rabbits around? Oh my God, you have a mother rabbit and your babies on the other porch. Oh, my dog has been eating rabbit poop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have to become a detective, right? Do. Where did it come from? The other thing that people don't understand is once the animal has a person has reacted to a certain group of foods, if you don't feed them and redo the test, the result will go lower and lower over five to seven months and can even be negative. Yeah. The person says, oh, well, my dog can eat that food again. No, they can't, because like vaccines, the immune memory recall will be reactivated. So they should never have that again. It's like breaking a bottle, even if you're fine. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so is there, we are, oh gosh, we're out of time. Um, but I want to make sure that people know where to find you, how to find you, um, all of the things that you're up to, um, you know, what you want people to know because you do, you're doing so many things out there. Um, I want to make sure that you talk about that. Okay, the main website to reach us is at www.hemopet.org, and we are federally registered nonprofit charity. Um, uh, you can put, if you want to reach me specifically, put in the subject line for Dr. Dobbs. You can ask any questions you want uh, based on this uh, podcast. I'm more than happy to help. There's no charge for our responses. Our goal is to help you learn more and research more. For example, Question for all of our listeners today. How do whales and other marine mammals sleep? How do what? Say that one more time. How do whales and other marine mammals like dolphins sleep? Oh, that's a good question. What do they do all day if they're swimming around? How do they rest? I bet you don't know the answer. No. It's very interesting. No, tell me. No, no, oh, I'm not going to tell you. Oh. So your listeners got to look it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I love it. You're going to make us do some homework. <laughs> the three and four and five-year-olds that are savants will know the answer, but we won't. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check it out because I have no idea. <laughs> then you can, you can um, stump all your friends. We have Erica swimming outside the sea here right in front of our window. So that was why I said, I said to my husband the other morning, how do you sleep? She didn't have much sleep. <laughs> Do they go up, get some, uh, you know, oxygen, and then dive down and sleep? Where do they sleep? Is it like octopus? If you haven't seen the documentary on octopus, you've got to see it. Right. It's the most incredibly poignant story about how the octopus lives and what they do as a family community to survive. Amazing. I love that. I love that. 
Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for your time, for you joining us. This has been such a blessing and a pleasure for me. Um, I am seriously so grateful. So we're going to jump off. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. You can find me, TasteLifeNutrition.com, everywhere. Taste Life Nutrition, all the social media. And we will see you next week. Bye, everybody. Stay with me for a second, Dr. Das, please. You're welcome. Bye, everybody. Love each other. Mm -hmm.